are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. Here's Nate. Well, as we approach 1 Samuel chapter 13, we are running into the section here in 1 Samuel where we are going to glimpse now the reign of King Saul. Samuel has given his farewell address to the nation. He is still alive, still spiritually invested in and involved in the leadership of the nation of Israel, but he has handed over the primary leadership responsibilities and duties to King Saul. And the next few chapters are going to show us what his leadership was like. He led, we know, for a period of 40 years as the king of Israel. We'll see eventually how God will reject him and his line from sitting on the throne in any permanent kind of way over the people of Israel. And in part, that will be caused by the events here of chapter 13. It says in verse 1 that Saul lived for one year and then became king and when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Now, Samuel had prophesied of this exact event specifically when he had explained to the people of Israel what it would look like for them to have a king. And he announced to them in chapter 8, verse 11 and 12, that the king would take the sons of Israel in order to create an army for the nation of Israel. And what we're going to see at the end of chapter 14 is that Saul got himself into a practice where every time he saw a strong man or a valiant man, he would pull him away from his family and put him into that Israelite army. And so here we see that he builds his forces in these early stages to the point where there are 2,000 who are with him and 1,000 who are with his son, Jonathan. And this is, of course, the first time that we're seeing Jonathan here in First Samuel. Uh, he'll be a fighting man, a battling man, a humble man, a, a friend of David, uh, a man who would lay down his rights and privileges uh, for others, a great man, as we'll see here in the next few chapters and on throughout the rest of the story concerning the life of Saul and the life of David, a young man in Jonathan who had a tragic death. Now, in verse 1, there is some textual confusion. The ESV, from which I'm reading, uh, says that Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, he built this army. Now, some translations wonder if what is supposed to be communicated here, and perhaps through the transmission of the text over the ages, we've lost the specific number, is the age of Saul at the beginning of his reign. Others think that all that is being mentioned here is that after a year of leadership and sitting on the throne, the threat from these Philistines began to arise 
And in the next couple of years, we have an account now of what Saul did in response to this enemy invasion. Well, somebody said this, that probably the best translation of this first verse of 1 Samuel 13 would be this. Saul was 40 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned over Israel for two years. And then these are the events that followed those two years. Others think that the numbers should be that he was 30 years old when he began. But uh, nonetheless, we have now somewhat of a timeline of what is unfolding at now the beginning of his reign. And that's why many people think he was 40 here at the beginning because his son Jonathan is apparently old enough to lead a thousand troops out into battle. And it says in verse 3 that Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land saying, let the Hebrews hear. Now, this is fascinating because it's a microcosm really of the difference between Saul and Jonathan. Jonathan, the younger, he goes out and he is fighting the Philistine garrison. He wins a victory over them. The Philistines hear of it. And then Saul, rather than fight, blows a trumpet and verse 4, all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. So you have Jonathan winning the victory, Saul blowing the trumpet, almost as if he's taking credit, self-promoting for something that he did not do. But that was his responsibility as a leader to gather the troops. But the people of Israel, the Philistines knew that Jonathan had won a victory. But the people of Israel, they hear that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. Uh, Saul seems to be a man who was interested in self-promotion here, giving the impression that he had attacked the Philistines. Listen, it is God who exalts and it is also God who humbles. Psalm 75, verse 6 and 7 is one of my favorite psalms because, you know, as we live through this world and this life, there are moments where we might desire a further opportunity. We might desire an open door. We might desire promotion. And it's good to remember where promotion comes from. Psalm 75, verse 6, for not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. To remember that God is the one who ultimately, at the end of the day, exalts a man. And of course, as we wait for that exaltation to come from God, we are called to be a hard-working people. Proverbs 22, verse 29 do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Excel in your work. Put yourself out there. Work hard. Learn. Continue to grow. Be skillful, not just a clock puncher. And watch and see what God will do to elevate you in whatever field, whatever ministry you find yourself in. Now, verse 5, it says, And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6 
thousand horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. And so what we have here is a description, really, of the despair that began to overcome the collective heart of the people of Israel in the response of the Philistines. They saw this Philistine army. Verse 5 tells us 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, which is slightly problematic for a reading. It's very possible that the original text would have said 3,000 chariots and uh, 6,000 horsemen, uh, because then you've got two horsemen per chariot rather than one horseman for every five chariots kind of thing. But either way, the troops were like the sand on the seashore in multitude, and this fear began to overwhelm the hearts of the people of Israel. The men of Israel, in panic, well, they begin to hide in caves, holes, rocks, tombs, cisterns. And some of them even left Israelite territory to flee to the, cross the Jordan into the Israelite territory of Gad and Gilead. And so some people stayed with Saul there in Gilgal, but they followed him trembling, it tells us there in verse 7. And so he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. Now, Samuel had previously given Saul directions. Now, we remember that Saul, Samuel had actually spoken to him. You've got to wait for me. A time will come where we will meet at Gilgal. You wait for me to offer that sacrifice. That is my duty, my responsibility. You wait. But we also remember that even all the way at the very beginning of Saul's emergence on the pages of Scripture... When he was wandering around with his servant looking for the donkeys of his father, Kish, they asked, you know, some women nearby, is this the town that the prophet lives in and where will he be? And they say to him, yeah, he's going to be over there and he'll be having a feast at some time, but you've got to go and everyone has to wait for him to come and offer that blessing. He has to be the one to initiate. And so even before Saul was called, there was this understanding. That's what you do. You wait for Samuel. You wait for the man of God. And Samuel had told Saul to wait those seven days, this time appointed by Samuel. But something happened. The people began scattering from Saul. And there he was on the seventh day, and he could wait no longer. And so he said in verse 9, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. That was not his responsibility or duty. 
And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, verse 10, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. You know, it's interesting. Samuel really, in one sense, was waiting until the last possible moment. I mean, it was the seventh day. And after Saul had taken matters into his own hands and offered that burnt offering, Samuel appears. And God seems to love to wait until the last minute in our lives. Uh, this seems to be his method so many times of establishing our faith. You know, one classic example that stands out in my mind is the moment when he provided an alternative sacrifice on Mount Moriah for Abraham. Abraham called to go to the mountaintop and offer his son, his only son Isaac, whom he loved, as a sacrifice to the Lord. And God waited for them to climb the mountain. God waited for him to build an altar, to bind his son, to lift up his knife into the air before God spoke to him. He said, Abraham, do not harm your son Isaac. Now I know, now I know that your heart is loyal towards me. But Abraham had faith. He, he had believed, he had said to Isaac, he had actually announced to him and said, God will himself provide the sacrifice. And the book of Hebrews lets us know what was going on inside the mind of Abraham. He had so come to the conclusion and belief that it would be through Isaac that the promises of God would be fulfilled, that, the, that his descendants would be as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And since Isaac had not yet become married and had children, Abraham actually believed, according to Hebrews chapter 11, that God would raise his son Isaac from the dead if he was forced to go through with that sacrifice. And of course, God would never require a man to offer a human sacrifice of his own son, but God himself uh, sent his son in order to pay the price for you and for me. And the truth is, is that with God, there is no such thing as a last minute. Uh, God raised Jairus's daughter from the dead, and it seemed as if the last minute had already expired, had already passed. But with God, there's always overtime. And God is not teasing us, but he is testing us. We're to be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Psalm 37, verse 7. We're to wait for the Lord and he will deliver us. Proverbs 20, verse 22. And so Samuel comes. And Samuel said, verse 11, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Now Saul offers a well-rounded excuse. This drives Samuel, drives God crazy. I hear this man, first of all, says, well, Samuel, it was the reality that the people were scattering from me. Their faith was waning. Not only that, but you did not come in the days appointed. It's the people's fault. It was your fault. And 
the Philistines had mustered at Michmash. So it was their fault, the people. It was your fault, Samuel, and the Philistines' fault for battling against us. And I realized, he says, that I was about ready to go out into battle without seeking the favor of the Lord. It's God's fault in one sense is what Saul is saying because God, you know, he's the kind of God that needs me to seek his favor before I go into battle. So I forced myself and offered this burnt offering. It's so fascinating though that Saul in trying to offer an excuse actually just simply revealed his own heart. He saw the people scattering and fear began to overcome his heart. He panicked because of what he saw. He acted on what he saw. He acted on what he felt. And a man of faith does not operate in this kind of way. God is looking for people who will live by faith and not by sight, who will not panic based on what they see with their eyes experience in their hearts or feel with their emotions. God is looking for people who will trust in the power of the Lord, who will stick to his promises, his patterns, his ways, even when things look very bleak, very difficult, very tough. God is looking for people, Proverbs 3 verse 5, who lean not on their own understanding. God is looking for people, 2 Corinthians 4.18, who look at the things which are not seen. God is looking for people, Habakkuk 2 verse 4, who as the just do, will live by faith. God is looking for people who will walk and live by faith, not what they see with their own eyes. And I would encourage you, I don't know what your experience is at this particular moment in your life. None of us knows what a day might bring forth. None of us knows when that next moment will come in our lives where we are called to exercise deep faith in the Lord. However, we understand and know that God is looking for us to respond in those moments where our flesh wants to panic or flee. God wants us to respond with simple faith and trust in him. And so Samuel announced to Saul in verse 13, Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now this is fascinating because Samuel actually elucidates quite clearly for us what it was that God was condemning Saul for. You know, later on, you, we get the next kings in Israel, David and Solomon. Both of them at different instances offered sacrificial burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to the Lord. Uh, David uh, as he purchased uh, the ground with which they would worship God and build a temple, it basically stopped a plague that had broken out upon the people uh, through his worship. And Solomon, when he dedicated the temple, they both made this kind of offering. And God in those places did not rebuke them or 
correct them or discipline them. Samuel tells us here twice what it was that Saul had done. He said in verse 13, you have not kept the command of the Lord your God. Verse 14, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. In other words, Saul sinned because he disobeyed God's word through the prophet Samuel. And this is something that Saul would actually do again in chapter 15. God is looking for people who will obey the revealed word of God to their own hearts and lives. We have, of course, the truth of scripture. Sometimes people will ask me, how can I discern what God wants for my life? And just this last week, I was talking to a young man who over the past month or so has just been touched by the gospel, gave his life to the Lord, has just with real sorrow of heart set about the business of growing and improving and gaining traction inside of his life. And just last week we were talking and he said, how can I know what God wants for me, what he wants for my life? And of course, one of my first encouragements to him was, listen, you have so much in the revealed word of God. You just get into scripture and you'll see so many things that God wants to focus on inside of your life. But then beyond that, there are moments where whether it's through a strong impression, through fellowship with godly believers, through counsel that we receive, through a supernatural word from the Lord, or quite often the collection of all of these things combined. There are times where we will discover a unique thing that the Lord desires for us. Saul had this. Samuel had shared with him, do not offer the sacrifice yourself. Wait for me. That word to his heart was disobeyed. And God cannot have a leader who will not keep the command of the Lord. And Samuel announces to him two rather weighty things. He says, first of all, verse 14, your kingdom will not continue. And so God is so holy, he decided to discipline and judge Saul in this extreme kind of way. But secondly, God announces that he is going to find a man after his own heart. Now we know that this is the first mention of David. Uh, David really was a man after God's own heart. And really when you follow the life of David, he did uh, as a man of passions, have failures inside of his life. Jesus would be the ultimate fulfillment of being a man after God's own heart, sinless and flawless in every way. But overall, David did have a heart like God's. He loved God. He wanted to please God. He saw his need for God. It's one of the great requirements of being a man after God's own heart, seeing your need for God, knowing that you are desperate for him and in great need of him. He was humble before God. Pride was really not a thing that crept into David's heart as much as it crept into Saul's. He was humble before the Lord. He was filled with the spirit of God, led by the spirit as he wrote songs and hymns and psalms to the Lord for the nation of Israel. And as he prophesied and as he led and as he battled, he was filled with the Spirit of God. He was a man who loved God's Word. God is looking for men who love His Word. And he walked in obedience to God. He was truly a man 
after God's own heart. And so Samuel, verse 15, after making this announcement, arose and went up from Gilgal, and the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. So we've actually seen a decrease in his army due to all of this fear of the Philistines. He's severely outnumbered at this point. 600 versus an army that is like the sand of the seashore. And Saul, verse 16, and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. This is a common military strategy in those days. It provided them more options and greater mobility. And one company turned towards Ophrah to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Horon. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now, in verse 19, we have a description of what times were like under that Philistine oppression. He says, now, verse 19, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for the setting and for setting the goads. And so what we have here is a description of the dependence of the people of Israel upon the Philistines. They had to actually pay them to sharpen their tools that they would use for farming and clearing the land. And this was a strategic decision, decision that the Philistines had made. They kept all the blacksmiths for themselves, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears was the statement that the Philistines had made. And, you know, I find that the chief goal of the enemy is always to keep the swords away from God's people. And we understand from the New Testament that the sword of the spirit is the word of God. The enemy loves to keep the word from us. He loves to twist the word. He loves to cause us to doubt the word. He loves to get us to fall in love with tools and books and seminars and steps. He'll let us have as much of that as we want as long as the word of God is not available to us. I found that there is simple power in the reading publicly, the explanation of the word of God. The more it sinks inside of our hearts, the greater and stronger we become, the more victory we experience. The sword of the spirit is the word of God. The weapon that we have, the one offensive weapon that we have is the word of God. We should know it. We should handle it. We should long for it, especially when we see that the enemy's desire is always to keep those weapons from our hands. So verse 22, on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. So sort of the perks of royalty, so to speak. And the garrison of the Philistines went out 
to the pass of Michmash. And so we have here in chapter 13 a description of the oppression that the Israelites were experiencing. And so we have to understand that there is an enemy out to oppress us and keep us from victory. Let's grab our swords. Let's fight in the power of God's strength, humbling ourselves, obeying the Lord, and watch him work in and through our lives. God bless you, and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.